0: home of the best-selling Lexus IS. Find yours today at LexusOfLexington.com.
1: Hello, and welcome to Connecting the Dots. I'm your host, Mark Shea, and we are here today, as we are here for every podcast, uh, in the Connecting the Dots oeuvre uh, I got to use the word oeuvre in a sentence, so that that's very pleasing to me as an English major. Uh, we're here to talk about life, the universe, and every, everything from a Catholic perspective. And today, I thought it would be good to have on um, a, a, a friend of mine to talk about something that is a hot topic in the news right now. Uh, I'm speaking of the... Um, Current struggles that are going on uh, concerning uh, alfie uh, Evans he's a, a little English boy uh, who has a uh, d- degenerative neurological uh, disease and and he's uh, uh, what to do about his care has been in the news uh, so I wanted to bring on the show today uh, somebody who knows what she's talking about. <laughs> In this field. Uh, uh, Her name is Dr. Jacqueline Abernathy. Dr. Abernathy, welcome to Connecting the Dots. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, uh, your involvement in this and and your work with uh, end-of-life issues and, and so forth?
2: Sure. Thank you so much for having me. I am actually an assistant professor in the Master of Public Administration program at Tarleton State University here in Fort Worth, Texas, but I got involved in this actually when Terry Schindler schivo was being dehydrated to death. Um, I got involved back in the early 2000s when I was still an undergraduate, and then I got really involved in 2003, the second time they pulled her feeding tube, Hmm. and I had just graduated in 2005, right after they succeeded in dehydrating her. Mm-hmm. Um, it was at the end of, um, it was actually March 31st that that went through. Mm-hmm. And there was a big, I don't know the right word for it, but a big PR snafu, because if you recall, George W. Bush had convened everybody in Congress back from their Easter break to do something about her situation. Mm -hmm. And then it hit the news that George W. Bush had actually signed a law in Texas that allowed the forced removal of feeding tubes against patients' families' wishes. And when I found out that it was legal to do that in Texas, I decided that I just... I, I could not abide that mm-hmm. <laughs> and I wanted to fix it. I had worked on several pro-life laws at this point, and so I knew the Texas legislature pretty well. Um, I would worked on Terry's law in 2003, so I, I felt pretty confident that uh, something needed to be done. And I went back for my PhD for the sole purpose of gathering the research to reform that particular law to mm-hmm. learn the objective truth. I didn't want to create a propaganda piece because that's not useful. I needed right. to know exactly what was going on. And I also needed some legitimacy. And at the end of it, I would be an expert on that. So I thought that that would help my efforts. Okay. So uh, for the last 15 years, I've worked with end-of-life disputes between healthcare providers that say we don't want to do this or we can't do it for ethical reasons and their families that Were demanding certain treatment, so I actually began working in these kinds of disputes precisely. And my dissertation is on laws that deal with these kinds of disputes.
1: Okay, so you have just a tiny bit of understanding and knowledge in this area, then. (laughs) A little bit, (laughs) a little bit. Good, good. Well, there's a number of things uh, uh, I, I wanted to focus today. We we. Periodically, you know, some story will come up in the news. Right now it's it's uh, Alfie Evans, uh, but it will be, you know, somebody else uh, in the coming weeks or months. Uh, and, and very often it, it seems to me that what happens – my own experience, I, I wrote about this on my blog a little bit. I've been on the road for two weeks, so not paying attention to the news very much, you know. And um, when I got back, somebody, like, comes to me and says, what do you think about Alfie Evans? And my reply was, I don't think anything about Alfie Evans because I don't know anything. I've been on the road, and I don't know anything. And the rep- the, the answer to that was not, oh, okay. The answer was, no, but really, what do you think about Alfie Evans? And I'm like, I don't know anything about the case. Well, why don't you care about, you know, these evil doctors who are trying to kill this child? And I'm like, because I don't know that they're evil doctors trying to kill a child. I don't know anything. And a lot of people are in that position. And what struck me about this, and this happens repeatedly, is stories like this take on a life of their own and they become litmus tests about a lot of other things that don't have anything to do with the actual good of the child. And I was wondering if you could speak to how does somebody navigate a story like this? How do you make how do you learn what's actually going on and apply Catholic moral reasoning to it?
2: That's a great question. I think a lot of it comes from a predetermined worldview. People have a worldview that either doctors are evil and ableists and out to get you, or a worldview that doctors don't go to school that much to kill patients. So you either have one worldview or the other. And once you have one worldview, you tend to look for information to vindicate your preconceived notion. You don't actually look for the objective facts of everything, and then come to your own conclusion about what's really going on. You have decided, oh, this is just a case of bigotry against persons with disabilities. This is ableism. And then everything you find goes through that lens. Right. And unfortunately, I've found in many cases that even when you can't find anything to vindicate your worldview, a lot of people will just start making stuff up. <laughs> so. Um, right. It, right. It, and, um, in fact, I've seen people bring up a scandal I was not even aware of with Alder hospital, the hospital that's been treating Alfie and they've been praised for their care. He hasn't had bed sores. He hasn't been at, from all accounts, he's been taken care of exceptionally well over the last year, mm-hmm. but they brought up a scandal where baby parts were being organs were being harvested. And it apparently it was a big scandal back in 2001. I didn't know about it until now it's being used right. to f- further the narrative that this is just an evil hospital filled with evil people, and it's a big conspiracy.
1: Right. So talk about the details of who is Alfie Guard, what's going on, uh, j- just what, what are the facts on the ground there?
2: I am only privy to information that's a matter of public record, which is the testimony given by both sides of this case in front of the judge. And so I've been able to read those documents. And there's something in science called triangulation where you get a bunch of different um, opinions of a bunch of different people and then you see where the middle is, where do they all add up, right. and where they all add up is is pretty much what you can conclude to be true. So okay. um, it's kind of like that old analogy of what is an elephant? And oh, an elephant's this flat thing that's rough. Oh no, this elephant's <laughs> this long thing with a bush at the end. No, it's this round thing like a hose. Right. It's all an elephant. Right. Um, but it's coming from different perspectives. So um, you know, I read the perspective of the parents experts that they brought in for a transfer. And I read the hospital's experts that have been okay, taking what, care of him for the what, last year.
1: Back up, slow down for transfer. What do you mean by that?
2: Okay. Uh, they The parents would like to transfer Alfie to a hospital in Rome where he would con- continue to receive palliative care because there is no treatment. Um, all of the experts agree that there is no treatment. They would like to continue the palliative care in order to explore if there might be treatments. but. Pretty much in this case, and let me give the big disclaimer, I am not a medical doctor. Okay. Um, I am just reporting what the medical doctors have said. Okay. And across the board, they all concur, pro-transfer to, a, to the Rome Hospital, uh, pro-removing existing life-sustaining measures, they all concur that there is no way to reverse the brain damage that exists. Um, maybe there is a way to stop it from progressing. And in that case, he would still be dependent on life-sustaining measures. Okay. And so either we can keep the status quo and keep him on life support while we examine other options, but eventually he is going to succumb to his disease. Or we can no longer burden him with life-sustaining measures because at this point, it's according to the doctors in the hospital, already progressed beyond natural life. And it would just be artificially sustaining him. So that's the case. Uh, Unfortunately, the case for transfer isn't just let's transfer and keep doing the same thing. It's when we transfer, let's add two more procedures, um, a peg tube in the abdomen, a feeding tube, and a tracheotomy, which involve unfortunately, boring two holes in this child. Um, And that's a big concern for, I believe, the doctors on the hospital side because it wouldn't give him any benefit doing those two procedures. Um, It would only cause discomfort. I believe that he's under sufficient pain control, and I also believe that he's um, partially catatonic, so I I don't really think that he would suffer from that, but it it definitely is not necessary.
1: Okay. So uh, uh, uh the, so the, the the way this is being treated by frankly most of the press that i've seen of course I, what i'm seeing is largely american press um uh but the way this is being treated is largely with the presumption that these are uh evil doctors who they're they're bean counters they don't Care about this boy. Uh, all they want to do is just cut costs, and that means let's kill him. Uh, what's wrong with that narrative?
2: Well, I've always found the British press, when it comes to life issues, uh, abortion, euthanasia, all of it, to be pretty remarkably even-handed, actually. Okay. And um, and I have been reading. British press, for that reason. (laughs) Also, they come from the British cultural context, not the American political context. And I think context certainly matters. So I have been, when I've been looking at news reports, I have been reading The Guardian, uh, the, you know, I believe it's The Globe, I can't really recall. But I've been reading news reports from there. But I also know that news reports come from the perspective of the reporter. And that's why I've been relying on the court documents as much as possible to to come to my conclusion. So, However, yeah. uh, what you're saying about, uh, these are just evil doctors trying to cut costs. Once again, it's, it's like I'm looking back on a former life and that I used to have that view. Mm-hmm. And before I did the research that th- the data changed my mind, the objective truth changed my mind and I realized I was wrong. Mm-hmm. I used to believe that in Texas, the reason why they would do unilateral removals of care for that law that I wanted to change, which, by the way, was reformed in 2015. They can no longer forcibly remove a feeding tube in Texas against the patient's wishes. Good we for got you. We got that fixed. Good so, for you. Yes, that was my life's pursuit. I thought that it would take me the rest of my life, and it was pretty immediate. Well, it's So time I to decided to – your-
1: Time Move to on. just put your put your feet up and drink margaritas now. I mean, you you've done your thing. Yeah,
2: actually, uh, three me- three weeks later, I met my husband. Six months later, we were engaged. Two months after that, we were married, and then we were expecting right away. So my life pretty much went on the fast track after um, I achieved my life's purpose. I got a brand new life's purpose, which okay. I am
1: thoroughly enjoying. All right, chapter two. Moving on, then that's good. But uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, so, so but but talk about then the, so that's not your assumption about doctors anymore
2: no and let me tell you why it was a, a major blow to just absolute shock and blow to me when testimony of a an obgyn in austin during a hearing in 2009 that i was trying to reform the law then said something that absolutely changed everything for me and he gave a an anecdote of a baby that was a micro preemie that was born so early that the size of the child's esophagus was bigger than even the smallest tube they had. So if they intubated this baby, the tube would absolutely destroy the esophagus on the way down. Uh, so it would basically be a, a, essentially mutilation. It wouldn't mm-hmm. actually do anything for the baby. It wouldn't even buy a little bit more time for the parents, but the parents were demanding You know, like breathing tube, breathing tube. And he said, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I can't do that. Uh, Please don't force me to torture your child. And his position was that doctors really, truly do want what's best for their patients. And let me make it very clear. I have seen cases of outright bigotry towards people with disabilities, tons of those cases. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm not saying they don't exist. Mm-hmm. Um I can name them. But when I compare that to the number of disputes where it was the doctor just saying, "Please don't make me resuscitate your 98 year old grandmother, break her ribs, puncture her lungs, and force her to die twice. Please mm-hmm. don't make me do that. right. Um, you know she's got an underlying illness. You know, basically, what I saw was when it comes about down to money, unscrupulous doctors, will pretty much do anything to a patient that the family demands and bill for it, mm-hmm. bill insurance for it. Uh, doctors have absolutely nothing to do with the money aspect of the hospital. They get their salary no matter what. They don't work on commission for you know how many procedures they do. Right. So when a doctor says, I don't want to do this, um, it's typically for ethical reasons. And I used to think, oh, well, they're just, you know, trying to save money. This is just a cost containment measure. But what I found out was the doctors that did not have these ethics and morals didn't want to fight. So when a family said, you know, intubate my micropremi or resuscitate my 98 year old grandmother, they would because they don't lose any money from that, and they can bill insurance for it. It's, it's really non-issue. The ability to pay is a non-issue. Mm-hmm. And what really changed my mind was I did field research uh, after my doctorate was done in Ontario, and you know Canada is single-payer healthcare as well. And I assumed that when it came to disputes up there, it was just cost containment and rationing. They were just saying this person's not worth the money. Mm-hmm not the case. I have never seen um, that being used to make any sort of treatment decisions. In fact, the fact that they're single payer kind of takes the issue of money off the table. Anybody that's concerned about money are the lawmakers, not the physicians.
1: Okay. Okay. Interesting. Um, So with respect then to to Alfie, because we... We've, you know, we watched the, the, there's so much tragedy involved in this. You feel nothing but pity for the parents. Uh, And and one of the questions that uh, comes up uh, very naturally is what about parental rights here? Don't the parents have the right to demand whatever treatment they want uh, for their child? Uh, and and keep him alive by any means necessary. What, where where would you what would you say to that question?
2: I would say that you cannot force a medical professional to do something that's unethical, and doing so is not good for the child. So we really need to respect the right to freedom of religion, the right to conscience, mm-hmm. and the way the medical profession is exceptional at policing their own. So. That's something we need to take into consideration because my position before I became um, completely informed on this issue was that, okay, well, one physician doesn't want to do it. They need to do it until a transfer can be found. And then I realized that ethically doesn't work because you're forcing them to do it. No doctor is going to take them because no doctor is going to do this. So essentially, you're forcing them to indefinitely provide something that's unethical. And then it hit me. If it's unethical, it's not good for the patient. So I thought I was taking this patient advocacy viewpoint. Mm-hmm. I had this us versus them, the patient, um, the have-nots versus these elitist doctors, the haves, and mm-hmm. they had all the power. And i that was my misconception back then. I do believe in parental rights. I do believe that parents tend to know what's best. When it mm-hmm. comes to complicated medical procedures, though, uh, unless those parents happen to be specialists in whatever procedure they're asking for, there's a good chance that they don't understand precisely what they're asking. Okay. And in this case, and Charlie Gard, by the way, is very different than Alfie Evans. They've been lumped together for similarities, but they're more different than they are alike.
1: Okay. And, uh, for background, because n- 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 my listener may not necessarily know who Charlie Gard is.
2: OK, a little bit of background. Um, Charlie Gard was a case in the UK last year at another hospital. He had m- mitochondrial DNA depletion. So it was a g- degenerative disorder. And that's what they actually think Alfie Evans has. They're not sure, but they're reasonably they've got a good hunch about it. Mm-hmm. The parents wanted to take Alfie on a major long haul flight across the pond to the United States for an experimental treatment that. Once again, there was no hope of reversing brain damage mm-hmm. and restoring brain function, but it could possibly halt it, which at that case, the status quo would be the best we'd ever have. But yes, he would live. He would continue to live um, in need of artificial means, but he okay. would continue to live. The hospital said no, because essentially Alfie would be used as a guinea pig mm-hmm. uh, for an experimental treatment that... He was not even a good candidate for, according to the physician that was proposing it. Uh, but it almost assuredly came with risks. There was risks in the transport, and there were risks uh, associated with the treatment. Uh, you know, bad things that can happen and mm-hmm. would, should be expected to happen. So in that case, the hospital said, "We are not releasing a child into a harmful situation." Right. And that's why they put their foot down. Um, I, what is different about Alfie Evans is I believe that they are being what I call ethical legalists. <laughs> um, when it comes to medical ethics, it's always a judgment call of burden versus benefit. Does the benefit exceed the burden? And the benefits of Alfie being transferred don't really exceed the burden of the can Continuing care, So they really think that the care that he's getting right now doesn't benefit him as much as it does burden him. But they want to take him to Italy, which is, you know, a relatively short jaunt from London, mm-hmm. not the same as going all the way across the Atlantic. Right. And what they want is not anything experimental. Um, necessarily, they might find something in the future. What they want um, is to just have more permanent life-sustaining life measures, a tracheotomy and a PEG tube versus the nasogastric tube he has now and the uh, ventilator. the I believe it's kind of like a tent. So that's what they want. In the Charlie Guard case, I believe that the hospital really had to, to prevent harm to Charlie, had to put their foot down. Mm-hmm. In this case, I think that they have picked the wrong hill to die on, Mm -hmm. I think that they should have stepped aside. I I don't like sensationalistic language, but really this is a hostage situation. They're holding him hostage. They don't have to continue providing things that they find unethical, but they should step aside because while it is technically unethical because there's not a benefit that exceeds the burden and he is presently being burdened, I don't think what they're asking for is excessive at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I believe that.
1: You you don't think what the parents are asking for?
2: No, I don't believe that a PEG tube and a tracheotomy is is excessive. I don't believe that it adds any benefit to Alfie. Um, I don't believe continuing existing life support has any benefit to Alfie. However, um, I believe that these parents, if a transfer was allowed, I don't see exceptional harm coming to Alfie because he is. Um, you have to sedate a child because they will otherwise pull out tubes. So typically at this age, you pretty much have to, even if they're not uh, partially comatose, you have to kind of medically induce that because otherwise they could do a lot of damage to themselves. I don't believe that the parents are asking for anything excessive. I think mediation broke down Mm -hmm. um, and the trust was absolutely Destroyed when Mm -hmm. the hospital said we 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 should do this and the parents didn't immediately come around. There should have been diplomatic efforts to win the parents over instead of just hey we don't need your permission we'll go to the courts because the courts are obviously going to agree with us. I think that they handled it incorrectly and this is a way to fix that and let them come to their own conclusion about what's best for their son.
1: That I, I have no idea how those hospitals work. It sounds like a bureaucrat. Made those calls, not the care team, but I don't know. It,
2: it ha- um, I, I believe that um, I, I don't know how disputes are mediated over there. Mm-hmm. I've, I've seen quite a few in my case studies on mm-hmm. how they're dealt with, yeah. and they typically just get punted to the courts. In the United States, the American Medical Association has guidelines for mediation, for ombudsmen, things like that, where we very rarely have disputes make it to the courts. Okay. Um, oftentimes the patient dies before that can happen. Okay. Because when you're on life sustaining measures, there's a limit to those. Right. And litigation typically takes a while. Okay. So oftentimes um, it kind of becomes a moot point when the patient passes on on their own. Okay. Uh, in Texas, we have you can't see air quotes because this is a podcast, but death panels. And what it is, instead of Automatically deciding to side with medical professionals or automatically deciding to side with the family, they decide that a healthcare ethics committee, which is a third party tribunal with doctors, clergy, social workers, and 25% members of the community, listen to the case for discontinuing life support and listen to the case for continuing it. And then they render a judgment at what they think is in the best interest of the patient. And if they decide that it's not in the best interest of the patient for care to be continued, the family has 10 days, 10 calendar days, unfortunately, not 10 business days to find a transfer. And they can always get an injunction if they need more time in the courts. So we've kicked judges out of this, except for potentially offering more time and injunction. But in other states, when they're when mediation breaks down, it typically goes to a judge, like it does in the UK.
1: Okay. Well, I, I think part of, you know, of course, w- w- what the layman struggles with uh, in all of this is th- this sort of vague perception that, uh, on the one hand, <laughs> I, I, I there's a there's a great quote from Chesterton. Uh, Chesterton remarks somewhere that. Uh, practically everybody in the world seems to labor under the uh, perception that at some point they must have read the Origin of Species and know <laughs> and know everything about it, you know, even though no one's read the Origin of Species, you know? I've not read the Origin of Species. Uh, right, yeah, and, and and so much of the discussion here has struck me as though you know, in the last 48 hours, Everybody became an expert on end-of-life care, uh, the British uh, uh, episcopacy, uh, <laughs> English law, Catholic moral theology. You know, and it's like, and they know everything about the interior workings of the hearts of everybody involved. Uh, so the oh, doctors, oh yeah, absolutely clairvoyant. The doctors want to kill this boy. For some reason, they kept him alive for 14 months. They've broken their backs uh, caring for this boy. And then they just got up last week, got up in the morning and said, let's kill this boy. And it's like – (laughs) well. It, it doesn't. Do here's the thing. These I,
2: I can understand. Uh, now I look at it and it seems so absurd that there's a conspiracy from both sides. The expert on both sides, the parent side, there's this vast conspiracy, this malevolent vendetta against a baby. Right. But I, I know what it's like to believe that because right. I used to. Right. I really did used to think that, um, you know, doctors are evil. And we're the little guy, and you need to stand up for the little guy. I used to believe this. What you said about everybody becoming a bioethicist in uh, the last couple of days reminds me. One of my good friends is um, counsel for Americans United for Life in D.C., Mm -hmm. and she says the same thing every time there is a Supreme Court ruling. She's like, okay, I love it, because this is the part where everybody on Facebook instantly becomes lawyers with <laughs> constitutional constitutional experts. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So and like, everybody is. And yeah. that's what I deal with every time there's some sort of end of life dispute. And unfortunately, I when I see somebody falsely accused. I automatically try to correct it. So every time, you know, people say, Oh, they're out to kill this boy. These are evil doctors. They've got it in for him. I immediately explain, No, here's what's, go- I, here's what's going on. Right. And because of my experience over the last 15 years, I, when I see this, I can kind of tell what's going on before I read it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I read it and I'm like, okay. Now I see what's going on, so right. I instantly come to the defense of people that I feel like are being falsely accused, right. and that of course instantly gets people to say that I am a child um, killer, a dealer of death, <laughs> etc. And and then they they make all these well you know don't you think that the parents shouldn't like I have never said that I don't support a transfer I do mm-hmm. I was just making the case for why the doctors in this situation are not what you're claiming they are. Right. Because wouldn't it be easier if, if they didn't care, wouldn't it be easier to just transfer him and not be dealing with the harassment and you know the character assassination and right. the, the threats? Right. So either you think that they are so incredibly evil that they are willing to go through hell just to kill a tiny little boy, or maybe they are standing up for a little boy that they feel like is in danger of more harm if they don't. Yeah. Which one are you going to err on?
1: Yeah. And, and that's, it's at that point that I, it, it, what really strikes me, you know, I, had, I, I was pointing this out, exactly this out to somebody earlier today. And what, what happened was when you did that, you, you, well, you were saying when people get, They get locked into a narrative, and then it's just like, if I can't find facts, I'll invent some, or I'll I'll just find some reason to complain. So, you know, they were at, well, why do they have cops at the hospital now? Well, it could have something to do with the stuff that I've seen on, you know, on Facebook, where people have been seriously saying, you know, wouldn't you have killed guards at Auschwitz to save (laughs) (laughs) Jews? It's like... Are you seriously talking about mounting an assault on the hospital and killing people to to do what? To uh, liberate, you know, <laughs> what are you planning yeah. to do, you know? And, yeah, but you I, get sympathize, crazy I really do,
2: because this is
1: what Charlie's
2: parents and Alfie's parents are dealing with is my worst nightmare. Sure. I can't imagine, and and, and I am a – unapologetic mama bear in that if you come anywhere near my children with malintent in your eyes, I am not a pacifist. Right. I will take out your spleen <laughs> and mail it to your mom. I mean, so I understand, sure. you know, as, as a mama grizzly myself, I completely understand that sentiment. I understand that sympathy. If this were me though, if I were in this situation and praise God, I have never been tested and I hope I never am. Mm-hmm. But... I maybe it's because the parents involved in the other cases were very young mm-hmm. and maybe because they don't understand the background but I know that if I were being told we have done everything we can for him
3: mm-hmm.
2: I would have agreed. Um I maybe I would have wanted a second opinion. Maybe I would have had more doctors. I certainly would have had more doctors come in and look and so I was absolutely certain okay both my doctors and the hospital say there's nothing else we can do for him and Unfortunately, there are limits to medicine. And just because we can do something doesn't mean we should. Right. So there would not have been a dispute if this was me. Yeah. Um and and oftentimes there's not a dispute when this happens. This happens more often than you see these cases appear in the news. Right. You know, so I, I understand the way they feel. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I, I staunchly disagree with The hospital refusing to release him. I think that they are being, they're not looking at the big picture because everything is a judgment call where you wait how important things are. And in this case, I think that they are not waiting the importance of diplomacy and pastoral care. If Alfie were allowed to be moved to Italy, they, the family would get that pastoral care, and I'm reasonably sure that they would come to a point where they say, "Okay, enough is enough."
3: Mm-hmm.
2: They, I mean, families typically do. In fact, yeah. Charlie's parents came to that conclusion on their own. Mm-hmm. Even though he was denied the experimental treatment, they said, "You know what? Um, we've, we've really come to the conclusion that it's just his time."
1: Yeah yeah and, and i mean all of that seems sensible to me um uh the, the one thing I, I thought it would be good to discuss uh as well uh just so people can get a, kind of get a sense of the contours of the um so the holy father uh i think doing exactly what a, any decent christian would do uh said you know look if they want to come to Italy, <clears throat> I'll make that happen and, you know, please. And so, you know, he was coming from the, the normal Catholic uh, perspective of, you know, respect the rights of the parents and, and so forth. Um, what happens as a result of that for a lot of people who are just kind of onlookers, you know, who aren't familiar with the details of, is uh, the Holy Father has proclaimed the dogma, That uh, uh, Alfie Evans must be taken to uh, an Italian hospital. And if you disagree with that, then you are, you know, uh, disobedient to Holy Church and all the rest of it. And and, uh, there's a very unclear, for I think a lot of people, a very unclear idea of what the basic principles of Catholic ethics are here so they looked for big broad signals like what did the pope say oh the pope said uh let him come to italy well that must be the teaching of the church here uh and in reality what it is is the pope being a nice man who doesn't have uh-huh. any particular medical knowledge uh, of the situation and so it's not his you know he's not there to declare pronounce and define anything um But with that is, I think, a very fuzzy understanding of what is and is not uh, euthanasia. Uh,
2: I would love to explain that. Well,
1: and I think you might.
2: (laughs) Because that is something I see quite a bit. And anytime someone says basic or simple, I, I like to point out that, you know, there's Steyer's axiom, the simplest explanation is typically the right one. Occam's Mm -hmm. razor actually is the right name for that. Um, I don't know if it's parsimony or parsimony, however you pronounce it. Um, If there's a simple solution in a medical ethics case, the simple answer is typically not the right one. It's typically the wrong one, because Mm -hmm. if it were that easy, we would not have a case, obviously. Um, The way you know something is euthanasia is quite simple. It all boils down to the object And the intent, the intent has to be to cause death. The object has to actually cause death, but the intent must be to cause death. When it comes to something like, and remember the law of double effect, when it comes to something like um, someone with terminal cancer and they've been through chemo, it's ravaged their bodies and they're told we can buy you more time with another round of chemo. So, you know, you've got six months if we just stop right now, but we could probably get you a year if we do maintenance chemo. That person's deciding, huh, I'd much rather have six months not hunched over a toilet vomiting, not feeling awful to enjoy time with my family before I go because I'm going to eventually go anyway than a year ravaged by treatment that only buys me time but doesn't even buy me what I consider quality time. The intent of saying, I don't want chemo is not to kill themselves, is not to hasten their death. They don't want to hasten their death. I'm sure they would like more time. It's the burden of chemotherapy does not outweigh the benefit of more time. And medical ethics says that every circumstance you look at the burden and make sure it is proportional, proportionate to the benefit. If it's not, it's considered disproportionate care. It used to be called extraordinary or ordinary or heroic. Now it's called proportionate versus disproportionate for a reason because there's, you're weighing, you're making a judgment call. What makes euthanasia euthanasia is the intent is to kill. Right. Um, so if I take away food and water from somebody with the intent of starving and dehydrating them to death, that is euthanasia. If I take away something to kill them, if I take away like kidney dialysis, so they'll die of renal failure, that is euthanasia. Uh, If someone says, I'm going to stop kidney dialysis because it's so incredibly burdensome and there's another underlying condition that's going to cause death long before this could possibly cause death and I don't want to just torture them with unnecessary kidney dialysis until they die, that is not euthanasia. So what makes euthanasia euthanasia is the intent to kill. And you cannot kill somebody by removing something that is artificially keeping them alive. So it can't be euthanasia to remove mechanical ventilation um, if that person would be otherwise dead already without mechanical ventilation. So, So it all boils down to intent. And one thing that I really want people to know is that we are so concerned, and I certainly am. I've spent my entire life pre- presenting, preventing euthanasia, so I care about euthanasia a lot.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, they overcorrect because they misunderstand the removal of disproportionate care as euthanasia. What they do is they overcorrect to the opposite side, which is dysthanasia. Mm-hmm. Euthanasia, Greek for good death, means hastening death, an unnatural death that's faster for the good intention of easing suffering. Mm-hmm. Dysthanasia is Greek for bad death. It is when you prolong death with treatments and you potentially cause it with complications from these treatments, um, and the person dies a unnatural death with the aid or from these treatments that are disproportionate. Okay. So what we do is... Because we're so afraid of euthanasia, and everybody knows that word, euthanasia, they go over and they do dysthanasia, and both are unethical. What we want is a natural death. Natural death is what we want. The opposite of euthanasia is a natural death, and so is the opposite of dysthanasia. Mm -hmm. I think, and I just wrote an article uh, for the Hastings Center that explains that I think that when it's a patient this young, that it... It doesn't seem natural for them to die at all. It Mm -hmm. doesn't. They should have their whole life ahead of them. So it just can't seem natural that it's their time. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we are more likely to practice unethical dysthanasia on patients that are young because a natural death just doesn't seem natural. Right but well, neither is dying attached to a ventilator.
1: That is, I, you know, you're absolutely right, uh, because, yeah, I mean, it's just this child should not die. I mean, you understand, you know, when somebody's 90 years old, um, it's their time, and so you let them go, but it's really hard, you know, to mm-hmm. to let a child go. Um, right. Okay. And, you
2: know, the, the, the principles that apply, two adults that have lived a good life and fought a noble battle with whatever disease they have are the same principles, do no harm, that apply to a child. Um, Age does matter. We certainly don't do organ transplants in someone that's elderly for Mm -hmm. for good reason. And it's not ageism. It's not bigotry. Um, We have to make some rough judgment calls. And when it comes to someone younger, yes, sometimes Because they're young and they have their whole life ahead of them, we want to be more aggressive with treatment Mm -hmm. that we might not want for somebody that's older and might not be able to handle rigorous treatment. So age is one of the many factors that you put into making these decisions. And that's why you cannot have these blanket basic principles that they say, oh, you should never remove a feeding tube. I used to believe that. Mm -hmm. I used to believe it. Mm -hmm. Uh, You should never remove a feeding tube. You should always give food and water. You should always do this and never do that. You cannot have these absolutes because every case is different. The prognosis is different. Um, The options are different. The values are different of the patient. So every case has to be looked at on an individual basis where you look at every different variable and come to a conclusion. So when you have these articles that say, oh, well, they're obviously violating the tenets of Catholic teaching when it comes to this. Mm, Nope, they're not. Right. I don't know where you got that.
1: This is all about nuance. Well, uh, I I think I do know uh, where people get that because there are people who treat the faith as a list of rules uh rather than as it almost always is in questions of moral theology it's a set of guidelines that you are as you say yeah i mean every case is going to be different so somebody's got congestive heart failure well you must always give them water well
2: and you uh, essentially drown them from the inside out
1: right yeah <laughs> so you know if you give them water you're actually helping to kill them um Yeah. And so, um, you know, things like that. Uh, um, but you know, I, I had, I had people writing me yesterday saying, you know, there is a right and a wrong here and Catholic principles will, or, or, you know, Catholic moral teachings will tell us what is the right way, the right way to deal with, um, uh, uh, Alfie's case, and it's like, yeah, maybe not so much. Uh, you know, there are a, a, a number of, it, it, and this is the. My wife said this yesterday. I thought it was it was astutely put. She said, when she looks at this, what she sees is a tragedy, not a travesty. There, there are no, there are no bad guys here, uh, and. and More than anything, um, the way in which the news in our country and political discourse in our country is structured is it is always about a good versus evil narrative. Uh There's a good guy.
2: It's it's so comforting. It's when you have somebody that and that's what's what's so disconcerting to me about this whole save Charlie Gard, save Alfie Evans. I wish we could save them. We can't save them. There's nothing that can be done to save them. They are dying naturally from their disease. We can right. extend that d- dying process with these extraordinary measures, this, mm-hmm. these disproportionate measures. But I really wish there was a way to save. Right. I think it's human nature to, when you have some sort of tragedy, Right. to want to be mad at something, to right. want to put the blame on somebody. Oh, right. this is your fault. This is your fault. It's right. nobody's fault that these children are sick. Right. And I think it becomes a psychologically comforting scapegoat right. to blame those that have acknowledged the objective reality that what we have is a sick little boy. Right. And it, it's just not true. That's the problem. It's not true.
1: Right. Right. Yeah, and so, and you're right. You know, the the um the great uh, Catholic philosopher Rene Girard, uh, talks about the phenomenon, and it is a it is a constant throughout human history. Uh, we are a species that does this. Uh, when we're faced with some evil that we don't know what to do about. We look for a scapegoat. We look for somebody to blame.
2: Uh, Are you familiar with the just world hypothesis?
1: Uh, go ahead.
2: Okay. The just world hypothesis states that for our own, what like once again, psychological comfort, we want to believe that the world is fair mm-hmm. and that um, consequences fit the person. So uh, this is where we get victim blaming. So we want to, since we want to believe that the world is fair if something bad happens to you um, if your house was robbed, oh well you you know shouldn't have you know left a note on your door for someone indicating you weren't there. That actually happened to me after my apartment was burglarized. I <laughs> left a note for UPS telling them just to leave the package there and then when the police arrived, oh well this is your fault because you know might as well tell them to come on in and have a beer I'm like um, thank you now get out. But um, so victim blaming comes from this just world hypothesis. We really want to believe we don't want to live in a world where we have to acknowledge that bad things happen to good people and bad things just happen right. for, for no, I don't want to say no reason at all, but, um, and that, you know, good things happen to bad people. We don't want to live in that world. Right. So what we do is we concoct some way to make it fair. So we feel better. And I believe that, A just world hypothesis is at play here because there's nothing just about an infant, a a child at the dawn of life, having their life cut short by a tragic disease. There's nothing good about that. He doesn't deserve that. His parents don't deserve that. It's just awful. And in order to make sense of it, um, we want to act like this is some sort of injustice being imposed on him. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, if the hospital would just let him be transferred, then, you know, he could – get this treatment and return to normal and, you know, get a driver's oh. license and go to prom. And no, that's not true. Right. We want to believe that because we right. want to believe something doesn't mean it's true.
1: And right. I, I really wish it was, but it's just not. And, and and, of course, the tragedy of that is that it it makes the people in search of justice become the authors of sometimes really gross injustice. Uh, you know, so declaring that people who have worked their butts off for 14 months trying to help this boy—they're killers. You know, yes, they have. They it are for him, monsters. They, yeah, just just moral monsters. And you know, uh, at, at this point, and you know, God willing, it, it will only remain at this level. At this point, it's been a brutal sort of social media savaging that these that these caregivers have had to endure. But as history clearly points out, it can, in the blink of an eye, uh, it can become, you know, some hero who decides that he is going to go down there with a high-powered rifle and, you know, open fire on these people to punish them or whatever, you know. Uh, and yeah, I, that's only
2: one of the dangers of this sort of thing.
1: Right. You know. I
2: think that the biggest danger is the misinformation out there. I wonder how many Catholics uh, that end up with a family member being sustained by a ventilator and being ravaged by all sorts of infections that you know are doing horrible things to their body are going to say, "Oh, the Holy Father has ruled on this, and we have got to keep that ventilator, and we have to fight." To you don't know how people are going to misinterpret it. I sure. agree completely with the Pope. I think he is making a pastoral decision. I don't think that he is rendering a judgment on the medical ethics of this or even parents' rights. I think he's making a pastoral decision. Yeah, and exactly. I agree with that pastoral decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do respect parents' rights. In fact, I uh, I came up with an analogy. I don't know if it's a good one, but it it, it explains. Where I can disagree with the parents but still agree with the parents when it comes to a transfer,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and I was also trying to explain the position ethically that doctors are in when the the patient's parents, when the the proxies want to do something that they disagree with, they want to pursue something that they think is not in the best interest of the child, and it's kind of like um, if my son has a sleepover and you know, with his best friend and the mom and dad of the best friend come to pick him up the next day and they show up in my driveway completely drunk. I cannot let this child get in that car. I can't do it. It's not my child. Right. I understand that. But I have a moral obligation not to allow this child to put be put in harm's way. Right. Now, if these parents show up, and they just happen to volunteer that they're on their way to see an R-rated slasher film. And I know for a fact that my son's best friend is afraid of the of the boogeyman because I had to stand guard outside the closet last night so they could go to sleep. Mm-hmm. And I believe that it's going to put all these images in his head, that the language is inappropriate. And I think that that's bad parenting. I don't think that that's good for him.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: That's not my call.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And so I can disagree with the parents wanting to do – the, the transfer and more palliative care in Italy. I don't agree with that, but I don't think it qualifies as the same as putting a child in the car with a hammered parent behind the right, wheel. Right. And I believe that the hospital is acting as if this is scenario A, instead of the, the former, instead of the latter. Mm-hmm. That's why, even though I disagree with the parents and what they want to do, mm-hmm. I agree with the hospital. I still support the parent's right to transfer, and it's Mm -hmm. not because of any sort of underlying principle necessarily, because I really believe that some people are so concerned with how this could set a precedent for their rights as a parent that these parents could be asking for the right to drive their kid home drunk, and there would be excuses being made for them because these other people are afraid of how this might get in the way of their ability to make decisions for their children.
1: Right. Oh, and that's, you know, that's the thing is that was what I wrote about today on my blog uh, was s- almost none of the discussion that I have seen in the press. There's been a ton of, you know, social media and and uh, articles being written and, and all of that. Almost none of it is actually directed to the question, what is best for Alfie? Evans and and because that's the only question I think that really ultimately matters and a huge amount of the conversation has been about people's own issues it,
2: I believe that um, you know. there's a couple of cases that really really disturb me and I have a theory and it's not necessarily the most charitable theory. But a couple of years ago, there was a profoundly disabled girl named Nancy Fitzmaurice, whose mother won the right in court to dehydrate her to death. Hmm. And that did not make ripples among these people that are presently outraged. Mm -hmm. In 2006, There was a little girl born premature. She was about the length of a standard ballpoint pen, and she had to be resuscitated several times. And finally, the hospital in the U.K. said, we're not going to resuscitate her again Um, We think enough is enough. We're not going to take anything away, but we're not going to to do this again. It's very invasive and traumatic to to be resuscitated. Mm -hmm. They unfortunately took it a step farther to say if she gets an infection, which are very common in hospitals, Mm -hmm. we're not even going to give her an oral antibiotic. No. That's where I said, nope, no, 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 no. That's not okay. Um, You don't deny something to a person with a disability that you would not deny to a person without a disability. That is bigotry. That mm-hmm. absolutely is ableism. So yeah. that's where I drew the line. That did not get much attention. Back in 2005, there was a man with a degenerative brain disorder. His name was Leslie Burke. He fought the U.K. government um, for the right to predetermine a feeding tube. Because he knew once he was unable to ask for it, they would not give it to him. And he was afraid of being dehydrated to death because you lose the ability to speak before you actually lose the ability to think. Oh. So he would be completely aware of his own two-week, excruciating yeah. demise. Yeah. And so he said, can I please have the peace of mind that you are not going to dehydrate me? <laughs> and the government said no. The UK government said no. Wow. So... Even though I was going in and th- those are a couple of cases I could give you more, I could give you way more. In fact, um, there, there was an article a couple of years ago where a doctor anonymously explained that they were putting disabled infants on the Liverpool pathway and they were starving and dehydrating infants with disabilities. Wow. So I don't trust UK at all. And it's not a cost containment thing. I don't believe that at all, but I, I don't trust their culture and I don't mm-hmm. trust the things that I've, I've seen them do. So right. even coming from that perspective of, Oh, This is the U.K. This is the U.K. Right. I know the U.K. Even coming from that perspective. So I could believe the hysteria of they're just trying to kill a child because I've seen them just kill a child. Mm -hmm. And coming from the perspective of no, no one has this strong an anger towards an innocent infant that they're willing to go through all of this to do it. And then reading the court documents and coming to my objective opinion on this. Even coming from that perspective, what bothers me is people only seem to care when it could potentially affect them. They didn't care about Charlotte. They didn't care about Leslie. They didn't care about Nancy. That bothers me mm-hmm. that all of a sudden people are more concerned with the principal than the person, the precedent than the person. And frankly, if they don't care what treatment Alfie's parents demand, they want him to get that to set the precedent so they can give whatever treatment they want for their child. And if Alfie has to suffer for it, well, that's a sacrifice they're willing to make.
1: Yeah. Yeah. that, And, and that's exactly – and that's one manifestation of this thing that I've seen, which is uh, – the the article that I wrote today was called The Uses of Alfie Evans uh and that was what i was noting you know I, I i have seen in the last 48 hours i have seen him used to, to you know uh, one guy was saying uh i have to have an ar15 because if this happens to my son uh i i need it to in order to uh, to what? To shoot your way through an airport and get on a plane? What are you talking about, right? So it was about for that guy it was about gun rights and not about Alfie Evans. Uh somebody else I've I've seen a couple of articles now which are about, you know, um liberals, why aren't you outraged about Alfie Evans? So it became a litmus test proving that liberals are heartless killers mm-hmm. who don't care about this boy, you know? And and of course that makes you a liberal who is a a heartless killer because you're not outraged. And it's like, I'm, I'm uh, grieved.
2: uh, I'm not outraged. I am deeply grieved. Right. Because it's something that disturbed me that I'm not surprised about. One of my friends mentioned to me that she overheard somebody in a relatively high powered position in a pro-life group saying, oh, we're not going to miss out on the biggest pro-life story of the year. So a lot of this is exploitation and piggybacking oh, for headlines.
1: absolutely it is. I've uh, seen that. Yeah.
2: That's disturbing to me. Yeah. And the dangers of this, there's so many. In fact, I could just write an article bullet pointing all of the different dangers. Yeah. One of the dangers is when you mislabel something as a euthanasia case that's not, then you basically give teach people that, Dysnasia is pro-life. It is not pro-life at all. That's one problem. Another thing is when you cry wolf, then you can't actually rally people together when someone like Terry Schindler schivo is being euthanized in a very slow, excruciating way. Right. That's a problem, too. Um, And third, credibility completely crumbles when people are seen using this for... Fundraising, fifteen minutes of fame—you name it. Yeah. There's there's so many dangers to this, right? And it really bothers me. In fact, I've had people come to me. I, I thought you were a warrior for feeding tubes. Ah, oh, you're freaking right. I am. Yes, I am. That's been my entire <laughs> life. is right. feeding tubes. Right. And don't you think that if this was a feeding tube case, don't you think that I would be there? Right. I would be on the front lines. Right. There's a, there's an actual feeding tube case that all of these pro-lifers have never even heard about. Vincent Lambert. Lambert, I'm sorry, he's French, Okay. (laughs) Um, in France, just lost. It's been an ongoing battle since 2015, uh, maybe even before that. That's when I first got wind of it. Basically, they are trying to, he is chronically uh, brain injured, and there's a fight between the family and the fiancé on whether or not to starve and dehydrate him to death. The latest court ruling was that he can be dehydrated to death. But that is not getting attention. This is.
1: Yeah. 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 And that's, you know, that comes back to, uh, well, you know, so much of this, you know, uh, the, the appalling, the app- frankly, appalling uh, notion of people claiming the pro-life mantle saying, oh, well, we can really use this. You know, <laughs> this is a hot case. We, we'll, we'll be there. Not not because of we care about Alfie Evans, but because this is, you know, this is a big noise and we can, we can, you know, capitalize our power base off of this, you know, and it's exactly yeah, that. pretty fancy coattails to ride, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And it's exactly that, uh, that concerns me so deeply because people see, you know, they see uh, who actually cares about... Uh, The child, which is the, again, the only real issue that matters here is the good of the child Uh, and the people who are just, you know, we can use him somehow. This is I can I can use him to make a plea for gun rights. I can use him to uh, humiliate liberals and call them callous, heartless killers. I can use it to, you know. um, take your pick Uh, one very common use I've been subjected to it in the last couple of days is simply to use him uh, to take someone's temperature uh,
2: it's a litmus test
1: yeah and probe and see if you can find some way to charge that person with not being really pro-life and I resent that (laughs) yeah Right. And, 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 <laughs> you know, it's just what an appalling way to approach that. You know, to, to use this kid so that you can um, hold an in, inquisition. Uh, right. And, you know, there's
2: one thing that uh, I say. One thing that disturbs me. I oh, I got a lot of things that disturb me about this one, <laughs> but. Um, one thing that disturbs me is, you know, by the way, I am not liberal. I am not conservative. Mm-hmm. When you're a research scientist like I am, you don't have the luxury of an ideology. You don't right. have a hammer that makes everything a nail. You have right. to look at everything on its individual merits and then come to a conclusion or you you can't actually do good research. So right. I you can't litmus test me on anything because I come to my conclusions on everything on an individual basis. On some yeah. things, I'm very conservative. On other things, I guess I would be considered liberal. Right. Um, but I had uh, one person say how disturbed they were about consistent lifers, and I would consider myself a consistent lifer. Mm-hmm. Actually, I would consider myself a Catholic, and therefore I am a consistent lifer of course, those things are kind of inexorable. Right. Um, One of my friends complaining about this whole seamless garment viewpoint Mm -hmm. and saying that we're they're being told that they need to take up all of these tertiary or related issues as life issues or they're not pro life are ignoring this issue as not a life issue Mm. and I respond with well first of all I think that I don't have my opinions on things like healthcare or immigration or whatever, because Mm -hmm. I'm pro-life. I have those opinions because I believe they're the right opinion to have. But I don't actually lump those in as pro-life issues. Mm -hmm. I consider life issues to be those where life and death is directly decided by a human, the death penalty, euthanasia, abortion. So -hmm. I consider someone pro-life that's at least consistent on those three fronts. And Mm -hmm. of course, you know, not killing combatants and war, things like that. So that is my definition of what's pro-life, not whether you agree with universal health care or the the dreamers or whatever. Mm -hmm. But my problem with this is I said, this is not a life issue. This is... Not euthanasia. If this was right. euthanasia, then absolutely the consistent lifers would be uh, remiss by not addressing this. Right. But it is not euthanasia. Right. It's just not.
1: Yeah, it's it's a question of people acting in good faith uh, and making prudential judgments, you know, based on uh some uh, i mean you could you could really argue that you know here you know, the the church is teaching concerning don't kill people i mean this is a matter of natural law right uh, so you They're don't expecting natural law yeah so people can and do make the right calls here without uh without being catholic without being theists Uh, uh, they're still able to make the right call because they're able to make the natural law judgment that you don't make people dead.
2: Exactly. (laughs) Precisely. I hate it when people oversimplify things that are inherently complex. Like I said, it's typically the wrong answer. But -hmm. when it comes to this, you don't kill people on purpose. It's not that hard a concept to grasp. And I actually started this crusade is the right word. Um, I was a Protestant, mm. and I didn't become Catholic until I was, I would say, more than halfway through. I became okay. Catholic in 2006, ah. um, but I started this whole thing in 2001. Okay. And it it was, but even as a Protestant, I would find myself, and this is hilarious, I would find myself coming to conclusions about bioethics issues, life issues like death penalty. Um, Even things things like gestational surrogacy, uh, Mm -hmm. sperm donation, any kind of bioethics issue. I would do research Mm -hmm. and then I would come to this conclusion that I thought was utterly brilliant. And then I would share it with a Catholic and they're like, oh yeah, that's what the Catechism (laughs) says. And I'm like, really? Man, you're almost thinking that I'm just this amazing thinker. And then I started realizing, huh, let's save myself some time. And before I do all of my own research, let me see what the catechism says, because <laughs> I could open the catechism, and I'm like, oh, yeah, there you go. I mean, yeah. that's objectively true. I don't have to do additional research to see that this is objectively true. Yeah. And you know, so I had no belief on natural law. I had no belief. In fact, um, I was a, an anti-abortion you know, sidewalk counselor. I did all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was pro-euthanasia. Because I, I really thought, OK, you know, I don't have a I don't agree with anybody killing somebody else. But if someone wants to kill themselves, uh, I was a libertarian, I guess you could say at the time. Mm-hmm. I had no problem with it. Right. So, you know, my my viewpoints have consistently evolved. But sure. being a Catholic, you are if you are a Catholic to begin with and not becoming one as mm-hmm. I have become, mm-hmm there should already be an existing framework in your mind about the dignity of death
3: mm-hmm.
2: and the respect we have for natural law. That should already be there. Yeah. And I feel like that is missing, substantially missing. And I also want to say you've made a good point, and I agree with you about what I believe to be the exploitation of this mm-hmm. case and but I do believe there's a lot of people out there that legitimately do care about Alfie. Oh, absolutely. They, and, and you know, and I, I know you agree with me, but yeah. and and they really not because they're under some sort of delusion that he can be healed or mm-hmm. anything else. They, they legitimately care about Alfie. And they're upset that he was denied uh nutrition. Right. But that was not to kill him. That was a, a very common boilerplate treatment you make that when you remove something extraordinary, you typically don't force feed someone who's dying because it actually makes things worse. It doesn't right. help. And then when they realized, wait a second, he's breathing on his own. We need to feed him. They did. I wish they didn't wait as long as they did, mm-hmm. but that was not an attempt to starve or dehydrate him. And by the way, they absolutely could have with the full backing of the UK court. If they wanted him dead, they, they could, could do have it. kept and they never kept, if you want to kill somebody, the quickest way to do it is to deny hydration. Right. They haven't done that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that's that's part of it. it again, it was, your, you know, it was your like your discussion earlier, every time there's a Supreme Court decision, everybody becomes an instant constitutional law expert, you know. And I've had so many people going, oh, yeah, well, riddle be this. Why did they deny him food? And it's like. If they wanted to kill him, they would have gone on denying him food, and they would have denied him water. They didn't do that because they don't want to kill him. They're really trying to treat him. And, uh, you know, so y- you get that going on. But And also, uh,
2: they if they wanted to do that, they could have potentially petitioned for it a long time ago.
1: Right, right. Well, and that's that's been one of the other – frankly, it's been one of the other uh, uh, uses – of Alfie has been very much this, this this discussion that purports to be about parental rights, but is really um, uh, a libertarian diatribe against uh, the evils of socialized medicine. Uh, you know, oh, this yes, would, absolutely. This, would, this, would uh, this is what happens when,
2: yeah, this is what you get when you have single payer healthcare. Well, we don't get this in Canada. Um, I. We don't, and right, yeah. I, let, me, let me tell you how I know. Um, the, <laughs> when I was working on my research for 10 years, it took 10 years of research, um, on the Texas Advanced Directives Act of 1999, the only place in the world that deals with disputes between healthcare providers and patients, and when I say patients, really at the point when you need extraordinary care, it's your proxy, it's your family. It's not the patient saying, I want this, and the doctor saying no. That's not what's happening. It's the family saying they would want this or we want this for them. So that's what's really happening. But when you have these disputes between the patient and the family, Texas is the only place in the world that um, has this healthcare ethics committee. Virginia has something a little bit like it. But mm-hmm. Canada, in Ontario, they have something called the Consent and Capacity Board, where mm-hmm. if there is a dispute, it goes to this tribunal and they It's it's full of the best and the brightest that make a ruling on, okay, what is in the patient's best interest? Um, Do they have the capacity to consent to this? Um, Is this something they would consent to if the family's asking for it? And I really thought when I studied the Consent Capacity Board, I didn't know why they have something that's a death panel by these standards, Mm -hmm. and yet there was no outcry in Canada, the way there's a big outcry on what they call the Texas feudal care law in Texas. I'm like, okay, pretty much the same thing, yet one is universally hated, and the other one is universally praised. Mm-hmm. And I really expected, being a single-payer healthcare country, I honestly expected to look at all of these different reports and, and sit in on one of these tribunals. I expected... To see the consent and capacity board side with the hospital mm-hmm. because these are, you know, I don't want to say in cahoots, but mm-hmm. these are medical professionals. And I would think that they would just tend to back up their golfing buddies, right? And instead, I found that very, very rarely mm-hmm. did the consent and capacity board side with. The doctor, not because they said the doctor was wrong, but because they said that it was a failure on the part of the doctor to explain this to the patient, and that's why there's a dispute. Yeah. So they upheld the patient's right to do it, and they sent it back to the drawing board, and they said, you've got to try again. You've got to try better to explain why this is the right course of action. They never said the doctor, well, I don't want to say never, because I had a sampling of cases. I didn't look at all of them. But in the sample that I looked at, I didn't see a single instance where the hospital said, okay, the physicians are right on this. There there were a couple of crazy cases that were anomalies. Mm -hmm. But on the whole, they said, this is a failure of the medical establishment to explain why this is not good to people that obviously care about their family. So if you explained it correctly correctly, to these people that obviously care about their family, they would say, oh no, we don't wanna do that to them. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if it were an issue of cost containment or, you know, single payer healthcare, if that were an issue, we would be seeing this in Canada. Right. And we don't.
1: Yeah. And and that's what has struck me, you know, one of the great ironies of this whole story is, you know, listening to people, I've heard this multiple times, uh, this is this is what comes of socialized medicine. It's they're trying to kill this boy, and if they would only let him go to Italy. But the draconian, evil British healthcare system just inexplicably wants to kill him. Uh, and, and there, there are so, so many things that I look at here as an American. And I go, well, okay, if they fly him to Italy, what healthcare system are they flying him into? They're flying him into a socialized medicine healthcare system again. So that doesn't make any difference. And that doesn't make sense as an argument. But what it also, you know, when I look at this, I, I, uh, the, one of the things that just sticks out to me like a sore thumb is if that poor boy and his family had been Americans. He would have been dead a year ago, and the the people who are yelling bloody murder uh, at the at the healthcare system that has taken care of him for free for fourteen months are the same people who are saying if they if that family lived in this country, uh, no, the state should not cover their medical bills. They should busk on the internet because when the state uh you know does socialized medicine it it somehow it takes away my power as a christian to be generous and charitable and uh so as a result this desperate family will have to make a choice between watching their son die or living in their car uh if they can still afford to own their car and not have that taken away from them too in order to pay their medical bills and so it's it's weird to me to to hear That kind of argument being uh, made—that this is somehow this is the fault of socialized medicine that this boy is dying—and it's again it's it's that scapegoating thing. There has to be a villain, so we'll call the villain socialized medicine in this case. They're the ones that did it.
2: And you know I understand, and here's why. I can't know anyone's heart and mind, but I know mine, Mm -hmm. and I know when I shared that mindset. I know where my heart was when I shared that mindset. Mm-hmm. So um, and by the way, I'm not for socialized medicine or single payer mm-hmm. healthcare care um, for logistical reasons. Right. I'm for uh, universal access. But uh, so I don't really have a dog in this fight. But no, I okay. used to be really against, I mean, very garden variety, what you said. Mm-hmm. And the sole reason I was against it was because of cost containment and rationing. I could see um, those that had no market value being denied care. So I was really opposed to it for the best possible reasons. And it wasn't based on reality. It mm-hmm. was based on my perception and sure. my perception came from, you know, my intentions were always good. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's weird looking at this, looking at people that say, okay, well this is what happens when we have socialized medicine. Mm-hmm. And I can look at it now and say, okay, I can absolutely understand why you would think that. I disagree now that I've studied this for the last 10 years, but I can see where they're coming from. Nonetheless, I think it's exceedingly bad form when you have someone that is presently fighting for their life and parents that are presently grieving to use this for any sort of political points in the meantime. And I maintain that right. anyone that really cares about Alfie would want to become educated on his prognosis, his circumstances, alternatives, etc. If their intention really is what's best for Alfie, they would have done exactly what I did. Now, maybe they don't have the background in the terminology and they don't understand you know, the ethical frameworks right. to make sense of it the way I have. I get that. Mm-hmm. But at least they would be correct in the things that they are saying because mm-hmm. so many people are like, oh, they're starving, dehydrating him to death. They're giving right. him a lethal injection. Right. They're doing that. That's just objectively not true.
1: Right. Yeah, and I've had people say, um, you don't have the right to – tell me what opinion I can have about them starving him to death. And it's like, uh, you're entitled to your opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. They're not starving him to death. That's just not so. Well, But I want to believe that it is.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it makes me matter if I believe that it is. You know, I have have gone about things – the wrong way. <laughs> let, me, <laughs> let me explain. Here, here, here's, here's why. When I see something that is just objectively not true, mm-hmm. my instinct is to correct it with the truth. That's my instinct. Right. And mine, too. <laughs> but I know human nature and human mm-hmm. nature, especially when it comes to calm boxes, is to fight. Mm-hmm. So if I were smarter about how I went about this, I would have started by establishing common ground so they would listen to me, because if I agree with them, I'm obviously right right? So I would have established the common ground of, I absolutely agree that Alfie should have the right to a transfer. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. However, um, I've studied this case and don't worry, he's not actually being starved and dehydrated. Then their response to me would have been, oh, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. And then we could start a conversation and maybe I could give them some information. But the fact that, you know, I, I have a full-time job. I have, the world's cutest baby. Uh, so I don't have time, you know, so I don't make this, you know, my mission to, you know, educate people on Facebook. I did not start these conversations in that way, which mm-hmm. would have been more efficacious. And also because of who I am and what I do, uh, people are constantly putting things on my wall. You know, what is your take on this? What is your take on that? I'm being mm-hmm. tagged in things when people are being called death mongers. Um, Jackie, bag me up on this one. And so I just, because I'm just, you know, marking off a checklist. Right. I don't take the time to start. I mean, I don't start in in a good way. And it's, but it's amazing to me. People Mm -hmm. that, you know, are so dedicated to whatever position they are, facts be damned, that it doesn't matter how many times I say, I agree with you, he should be transferred. I'm just correcting when you said that this is what's happened this is what the doctors are doing i agree with you he should be transferred absolutely however this is an ethical problem because no matter how many times i say i agree with you it doesn't matter the fact that i have uh, you know indicated in any way some deviation from the talking points narrative any right. deviation must be punished right. everybody must get their and their torches, and there is no room for reason.
1: You're a in shill. This. You are a shill for death. I, I saw that.
2: <laughs> you know, I've been called a bunch of of, of awful things, and you know, it gets to me considering that. And by the way, I don't say this because I think I deserve a cookie, but um, studying this for ten years, uh, mm-hmm. all the the nights I stayed up, all the transfers that I worked on, all the fasting and praying that I've done. Mm-hmm. Um, I really have completely given my whole life to this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's worth it. I'm not saying I deserve anything for sacrificing. I did it for feeding tubes and I got what I wanted. And I, if I'm paying for it the rest of my life, it's still worth it. Mm-hmm. So I'm not uh, complaining about everything that I've been through to know what I know. However, it's just it, it, it sticks in like my, my justice craw I guess a little mm-hmm. bit when I have people that have no skin in this game they've don't even read the, the court documents they haven't sacrificed anything uh, they're not you know necessarily fasting and praying that are absolutely skewering. My credibility and reputation, and saying that I support something that I don't, mm-hmm. and misrepresenting my position, because what that does is when we have a genuine euthanasia case, a feeding tube case, people will not come to me and I can't help them. That's mm-hmm. what scares me mm-hmm. about. Uh, and that's why I should have, um, when I got into these discussions, I definitely should have been um, a little bit more prudent. I didn't say anything mean to anybody hmm. So um, uh, that's not true. I did, but they had well, it coming and I <laughs> apologize. <Nonetheless. laughs>
1: well, yeah, a- a- part of it is also, you know, we're living now in this weird time in American history where uh, somehow expertise is perceived to be uppity. And it's like yes, and and, uh,
2: and and I'm a professor, so I am the enemy. I am right. trying to indoctrinate uh, children into being Marxist foot soldiers for Satan or something. I don't know.
1: Right? Yeah. And 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 conversely, there's there's like this pride in well, I don't know anything. I'm just uh, just a simple, you know, heartland guy. You know, and I just all I know is I trust my gut. Well, okay, fine, but you know your gut doesn't know anything about <laughs> about this.
2: You know, I actually was told, uh, and this this is a good case study in human behavior. But there was a, a Facebook friend of mine that reached out to me back in 2015 because there was a little girl that was being denied a feeding tube because mm. of her disability, and so and that is technically should be illegal because of the baby Doe laws the uh, Child um, Abuse Pre- Prevention Act that Dr. C. Everett Koop got passed after the Baby Doe cases. I don't know if you're familiar with those. Are you familiar no, with Baby no, Doe cases? No, I'm not. That's a really good discussion to have sometime. time. But okay. uh, in the early 80s, there were a bunch of parents that were having children with disabilities that needed what would be considered routine medical care that they were denying because they didn't want a child with disabilities. Mm-hmm. So... Um, there's a Baby Doe Bloomington. Um, I don't feel comfortable calling him that, so I prayed, and I called him Nathaniel. That's the name I got. It means gift of God, which I think is very appropriate. Mm-hmm. But Nathaniel was born with an extra chromosome. He had Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the obstetrician that delivered him was uh, Dr. Walter Owens. He was also actually an abortionist. <laughs> okay. So he said to the parents, This child's never going to do anything. He's just going to be a blob. Uh, Nathaniel had esophageal atresia, which is where the esophagus does not go into the stomach, and it's easily correctable by surgery. Mm -hmm. It's more common than you think. And they said, deny the surgery. Uh, A dozen couples came forward offering to adopt Nathaniel.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: And in fact, Dr. Owen's direct quote was, there are worse things that can happen to a child than dying, and that is that it could live, it, not he, it, and in response to these situations, it was actually Dr. C. Everett Koop, the uh, the Surgeon General at the time, that made it a law to have healthcare ethics committees, death panels, right, death Mm -hmm. panels, Uh in these hospitals, and if you could be caught denying care to a child on the basis of a disability, you would lose all federal money. And that's 40% of a hospital's revenue is Medicaid and Medicare. Okay. So they had a real incentive not to do this. And it was being policed by the health care ethics committee. Okay. So I actually was working with this woman on that case. So she knows, you know, what I do and what I really care about when it comes to feeding tubes. She reached out to me to help her. And then okay. when I explained my position on this, Uh, She was the one that said, I thought you were a warrior for feeding tubes. I said, I am. This is just not a feeding tube case. And I explained that the experts all agree. She said, well, I think you should listen to the parents and listen a little less to the experts. (laughs) Direct quote. Yeah. And then afterwards, she accused me of being an elitist. Um, You know, her opinion is just as valuable as mine. And by the way, I didn't say anything about, you know. Any I mean, just I, I, I read it and I agree with them. That's yeah. all I said. Yeah. But she has since decided to have nothing to do with me. And I'm afraid that if she ever gets wind of another case, she won't reach out to me because she's so mad. Right. About, you know, I, I've been told. Yeah, I've been told all sorts of things about how what a disappointment I am.
1: Well, yeah. Well, uh, you're not. You're you're doing good work. It's just you know this this bizarre democratization of ignorance. You know, uh, it's just. I mean, my opinion is just as good as yours. What does that mean? If somebody comes to me and says, you know, what's wrong with my car, I will say to them, I have no idea. I don't know anything about cars. I'm not going to go to my brother. Actually.
2: If you see a little light on the dash, <laughs> you cover it with a sticker, you don't have to look at it anymore. Oh, there you go, and if yeah. you hear some clunking, raise the, the volume of the radio, and then you don't have to – that's about as far as I know. My, cars, but yeah. you know, well, it's been helpful you know, for me when I was really poor.
1: So, yeah, I'm not going to march down to the garage and say, my opinion is just as good as yours because my opinion is worthless on that subject. <laughs> and, you know, for the a huge number of people – um. You know, their opinion about the treatment regimen of a boy with with a mysterious disease on the other side of the Atlantic about whom they know nothing is just worthless. (laughs) They can have, sure, you can have a gut feeling, but what do you know? Um, I have a theory, actually. Yeah.
2: And um, I I, I got it a couple of years ago. And I teach graduate school now, I don't have uh, undergrads anymore. Mm -hmm. But. I have now been teaching long enough where this internet generation is now graduate students
3: mm-hmm.
2: where the standards are higher uh, than undergraduate students and my theory is this it used to be that in order to get an audience for your opinions your words you had to have something that was worth the money to print it to broadcast it uh, right. you people would be willing to buy it because you're you know selling newspapers and You also had to stand behind it because people would lose their credibility if they were caught publishing anything that was not true. There were some standards to it. Right. So it used to be that for anybody to have an audience, even a limited one in a local paper, they had to have something that other people thought was worth listening to, that other people would want to listen to because of, you know, credentials or experience, et cetera. Exactly. In the internet age, Anybody can say anything and it can be broadcast to the entire world from a box they carry in their pocket next to their Mentos. Right. And because anybody can have an audience and there's no accountability whatsoever for anything anyone says, Mm -hmm. people are not even embarrassed about sharing things without checking to see if it's true or not. Right. Because that's become the standard, people somehow feel entitled to have an opinion on anything that they think has just as much value as those that say spent the last 15 years working. And that's where my opinion came from right now. And I've also found, this is a theory of mine too, that people that value the, the objective truth enough to invest themselves into learning what needs to be learned and they know how hard it is and the sacrifice it takes to study and do all these things, have more of an appreciation for people that know things we don't know because we know exactly how hard it was to get that. So it's easy for me to appreciate a medical doctor and all the studying they did in the residency because, you know, I've done some studying too. It's not easy. I studied something different Um, and I, I want people to benefit from all the studying I've done and I'm happy to benefit from all the studying you've done. I've noticed it's the people that, Skin in the game is the right cliche for this. Really, Mm -hmm. have no skin in the game. Mm -hmm. That have no regard for those people that uh, have laid down, bled, sweat over this. And and I don't expect anymore. So when I tell people, oh, the reason I have an opinion on this is because I have a seven chapter dissertation on this exact thing.
1: Right. Um, Yeah. And there's a. They say, oh,
2: well, that doesn't matter.
1: Exactly. Well, and and that's part of it is because the additional psychological, in in addition to what I call the any idiot with a keyboard syndrome, you know, where really any idiot with a keyboard can, you know, just pick up a computer and say, that seems to me that the Earth is flat, because I read something (laughs) somewhere, you know, or whatever. But there's also, I mean, there's an act of resentment of people who do have real expertise. Why do you get to be called an expert?
2: Yeah. You think you're better than me? I really don't think I'm better than you. I just think that I've studied this a long time, and maybe I've learned something along the way. It's not like you play cards for, you know, seven years in grad school. Yeah. But I've noticed with my students um, that the first lesson I give is the difference between a positive statement and a normative statement. A positive statement that can be proven true or false, and in graduate school should have a citation to show where you got it and that it is true, and mm-hmm. a normative statement that is a value opinion statement that cannot be proven true or false, mm-hmm. which should be limited and also worded as an opinion. So. Mm-hmm because it's amazing how many research papers I get where people just state their opinions as if they're facts. And you know, so i'm I'm doing my part to try to change this a little bit, but I really think that we just live in a world where everybody thinks that they know everything. In fact, yeah. um, I love those mugs that say, you know, my JD eats your Google. PhD or whatever it is. And I, I just feel very sorry for anybody that's a physician mm-hmm. because everybody goes to WebMD and all of a sudden it's the equivalent of years of medical school and residency right. and experience. Right. It's, it's, it's kind of rough to be anybody that actually knows anything in a world where everyone thinks they know everything.
1: <laughs> well, listen, uh, Dr. Jacqueline Abernathy, I want to thank you so much for uh, being on the show today. Uh, You've been listening to Connecting the Dots. I'm your host, Mark Shea, and we will be back again, uh, well, one of these days soon, probably to bug Stephen Gradonis or something. But in the meantime, uh, have a good week and weekend. Talk to you later.
0: Bye-bye. Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... We want to help others, especially in places of strife, such as the Holy Land, where Christianity is dwindling by the day. But how to help? Here's an easy way. Buying products through the Holy Land Gift Shop. Every product you purchase at myfranciscan.org shop helps Christians support their families and stay in the Holy Land. Olive wood, embroidery, spices, and many more authentic products from the Holy Land are available right now at myfranciscan.org shop. The Holy Land Gift Shop, bringing the Holy Land home. I learned how many people we could help and how good you feel after you have helped others. I know Lent is about giving, so I want to give.
2: These kids are talking about CRS Rice Bowl, a Lenten program known by generations of Catholic families. Children love it because they experience different cultures and gain a lasting impression of the people they are helping. You can bring CRS Rice Bowl into your home and experience the joy of seeing your children or grandchildren find new meaning in Lent. Visit
3: crsricebowl.org to get started. Rice Bowl inspired me to pray more and to pray for
0: those who are less fortunate. The Cincinnati Catholic Men's Conference is back. Tickets are on sale now for Saturday, April 28th, at the Taft Theater at CincinnatiMen'sConference.com or call 513-214-1534. The speaker conference roster is being hailed as one of the best lineups in the country. In rare appearances, come see Father Mitch Pacwa from EWTN, the man motivator, Father Larry Richards former Moeller High School and University of Notre Dame head football coach Jerry Faust, and the big celebrity keynote, Baz Ruten, UFC world champion, MMA world champ, and movie star. The conference theme is what it means to be a true Christian man in today's society. Don't miss the incredible day of motivation, spiritual benefit, and fellowship with men from all walks of life. Get tickets now at CincinnatiMensConference.com or call 513-214-1534. That's CincinnatiMensConference.com or 513-214-1534. Thank you for listening to Breadbox Media. Find more about us at BreadboxMedia.com.